So hi and welcome to the Rags to Riches show with myself, Terry Blackburn. Today's guest is a good friend of mine, a guy called Wayne Dance. He has a really interesting and I feel inspiring story that I think a lot of people will hopefully be inspired by. He's a very knowledgeable, successful guy, so please listen to what he's got to say. I think there's definitely some lessons and learnings in there for sure. To give you an idea of his career so far, I could probably talk for an hour on his career alone, but uh, let's just give you some of the highlights. He grew up in a council estate, you know, certainly didn't have a silver spoon or anything like that. Um, Got himself into sales at a young age, very successful at that, selling plumbing and heating fittings as well as kitchens, generated millions of pounds for the companies that he worked for, uh, becoming number one salesman at the two different companies. To give you an idea of the success, he was also a managing director of one of these companies, got promoted to managing director of one of these companies at age 29. He then set up his own business in 2003 called In-House. So there'll be a lot of property guys listening to this. Um, have a look at what he does. Um, really, really beautiful, high-end kitchens, bathrooms, and bedrooms. Um, since he set that up, they now supply over 500 shops throughout the UK, generating, I think, um, over 20 million pounds, 20 million euros in turnover. So again, gives the idea of the scale. And then at the age of 60, he invested a couple of million pounds of his own money into building a really high-end, beautiful showroom up in Northumberland, a place called Hexham. Um, and he's going from strength to strength. So I'll let Wayne tell you the rest, but um, but that's the, the calibre of the guest today. So welcome to the show, Wayne Dance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on, mate. I know you're a very, very busy man. Um, so what we like to do, Wayne, on the show is just talk about the three parts of your life. If you partitioned it up into three, the first part would be um, sort of your upbringing and how you got into sales, sort of how you got into your business, the sort of start of your journey. The middle part will be the growth part and the, the exciting part. And then the current part, the last part is just what your attention is on now and where, where you see things going in the future. So if you could just give us like a short overview of those three parts, really starting with the first part, Wayne, and how you got into business, how you started off and, and any advice would be great. Well, the first part of my life, I was, and still am, football crazy, Newcastle United crazy. Yeah. Uh, I had this dream of one day pulling on a black and white shirt. Uh, I got close to that with having trials with Hartlepool. Um, <laughs> that career didn't happen purely and simply because I was stupid on a motorbike and smashed my leg in 17 places at the age of 16. So for a while, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I felt my dream journey was, was ripped away. Um, where I grew up was not an easy place to grow up. It was a tough area. And I still have some friends for, from that region. Um, but at the end of the day, I first uh, embarked on a job as a heating engineer, installing plumbing and heating systems. Didn't like it. But it was, it was the, the choice I made, and I, I served my time. Did that for eight years, and then Margaret Thatcher, who was the Prime Minister at the time, started cutting back on public spending. The company I worked for was the CWS, so we did lots of schools and hospitals, which then stopped, um, stopped the expansions. So bit by bit, the, the firm was paying, making people redundant, and eventually I was one of those redundancies. Didn't want to go back into heating, although it was difficult to get back into it anyway because of the economic climate. And a friend of mine was uh, passing the door. I had just been married, just bought a brand new house, um, which obviously come with a mortgage. And he was <clears throat> passing the door where I was sitting in the garden, writing away for jobs. I would have done anything, police officer, anything. And he just happened to mention that his company was looking for canvases. I'd never sold anything in my life. And the risk was that if I took this job um, and I sold nothing, I didn't get a penny. And I couldn't claim dole at this time, purely and simply because it was a job and you couldn't do both. So he got us a, a, an interview it, and I went to the company <clears throat> boss at nine o'clock in the morning. By five past nine, I had the job. And I said, what training do I get? 
And he gave us a load of leaflets. He said, read them. And he pointed to the map of the Northeast. He said, now go knock on doors with them leaflets and come back with some results. Uh, very, very daunting task. The um, cell was a difficult one because, again, we were in a, a difficult climate, but it was aimed at a lot of people who couldn't afford a yearly premium. And it was something like 25 pence per person per week, which is what I based my pitch on. It was the price of a loaf of bread. Uh, and if they, they'd fallen, sprained their ankle, they would get two weeks payment, which was equivalent of the whole year's premium. And much to my surprise, um, I was at a very young age. I was early 20s. And I was knocking on a lot of doors, middle-aged people's doors and what have you, um, in council house estates, and um, used whatever charm I could to uh, beg, steal, or borrow um, leads and, and sign people up. It was a hard task because it was 300 doors per day to get five sales. So if I got five sales, I was well above my target and I was earning, um, I think it was £50 a day, uh, which was quite a, a good return, um, much more than I was earning as a heating engineer. But every day you got up and you had to start again, knowing you were going to be told to, to do a one uh, 295 times. Yeah. Um, and I used every tactic in the book. It's cold. I was chattering my teeth. Um, if I sign you up, I can go home. And of course, the middle-aged women took to us. So I got uh, a lot of sales. And what I used to do at the time was say it was 25 pence a week, but then ask for 50 pence. Well, you said 25, yeah, but you've signed your husband up as well. Um, and by far and away, I was the most successful canvasser that the company had ever employed. So much so that when a book come available, because my part was to get the, the agent in the door to try and sell them other policies, and <clears throat> when a, a book come available or a round, um, they're offered as a book. And my pitch used to be the cost of dying has gone up as well as the cost of living. So have you got uh, enough cover for your funeral and everything else? So I was going to accept that job. Um, which was far more stable. It still contained a, an element of knocking on doors, but it was a steady income because it was a, a route and it was a, a, an agency. Um, just at that time, I had to go back to uh, a client who couldn't make a decision without his wife. So I went back to his house at six o'clock at night and um, whilst my wife at the time was sat in the car, she'd seen an advert for plumbing and heating sales rep. So I fancied that. So I went for the job. There were 66 people in for the job, and a lot of them were competitors reps. So I thought, what chance have I got? Um, got down to the last six, and they brought a, a director up from Huddersfield who eventually become a very good friend of mine, but at the time he was the big director of Graham's Builders Merchants. And he insulted us in a way because at the interview, he said, what makes you think you can sell for us? I says, have you ever knocked on 300 doors a day to get five yeses? I says, that's what I've done. If you can do that, you prove to me that you've sold. And I did it in a, in a quite a angry way. So he said, well, I think that brings the interview to a close. So I thought I'd blown it. Went back home, chucked the, the file on the, the settee. My wife said, what have you done? I says, that's gone out the window. Three days later, I got a letter through the post saying, you're employed. Um, and that guy become a very, very good friend of mine because, and he said to my wife at a Christmas party once, that the reason... I gave him the job because I was going to go for one of the reps that was working for the competition because they had more contacts. The reason I gave him the job was anybody that had the, the, the balls to turn around to a sales director and give that, he says, that'll do for me. Um, as I say, he become a friend, but he become a friend because I was outperforming everybody else. I won 
national sales competitions. Um, I won holidays to Florida and holidays to Monte Carlo, uh, where there were events, there were, there were public events or dealer events. So they the took me um, and three other reps out of 64. Um, there was only four of were qualified for that. And um, we had a, a, a great time. And every competition that ever come, the, the, the directors used to have a sweepstake. And he got me. And uh, he was over the moon because he, he won the kitty each time. <laughs> um, so eventually I started getting coached from other companies because when I joined Graham's, the turnover was 330,000 for the year. When I left in two year, three years later, it was 3.2 million. And the reason I left was I got coached by a kitchen company then who was also um, supplying a company that I was supplying um, something heating stuff to, even though I was told not to go in there by the manager. And uh, he said that they're difficult, they want everything for nothing. Um, so I did what I wasn't told and went knocking on the door. And for the first six weeks, they were virtually ignorant to us. And the sixth week, I went in and I said, do you always ignore television stars? And Keith Atkinson, the, uh, the owner turned around and he went, television stars? I said, well, I must be the invisible man. And he just- That's what you said. <laughs> icebreaker. On it's a good icebreaker. Yeah. And uh, he says, You've got some cheek, haven't you? I says, you know what else I've got? Cement. And you haven't got any because cement's on strike. He went, and would you sell us some? I says, I will. He says, but at what price? I says, the same price as you normally pay. Just go and get us the invoice and I'll match the price. So away he come back with the invoice. He says, I'll have 20 ton. I says, now go and get us your copper tube invoice. He says, what for? I says, because 20 ton of cement comes with 20 ton of copper tube. And I'll match the price. So anyway, I rang the, the branch manager up who had told us not to go in there. And I said, I'm at ABS. I've got an order. He went, let's guess for cement. I went, yes. He went, I told you not to go in there. I says, yeah, but I've also got an order for 20 ton of copper tube to go with it. And they become one of our biggest clients. So <clears throat> over, over the years, the three years I was there, um, I, I performed admirably to the point where this same client, was selling Castle Kitchens, and Castle Kitchens was after a rep. So they put my name forward, and initially I turned the job down. Um, but it was somewhere, I can't remember exactly, It was the offer was somewhere between 50 and 100% increase on salary. And even though I turned it down, they come back again, and the offer does more. And this time... Graham's couldn't do anything about it because it, it elevated as above even what the branch manager was earning. So normally in them circumstances, you just give your car keys and get the bus home. They didn't. They put a party on for us. They bought us a lovely camera, which camera the, the, the Pentax had just come out at the time. And they told us that if it doesn't work, come back and you'll have your job here. So I did go and I had... A little bit of trepidation because kitchens, I didn't know anything about them. And when I got to the, uh, to the new company, um, the patch was the poorest performer. So again, I inherited a, a duff one. And within a matter of two years, it was by far and away the biggest performing patch of the company. I was earning a lot of money for a young lad at that time, but then company started getting into financial difficulties. So I got poached again by another company, another kitchen company. I didn't want to leave, but I couldn't say that they were going to get out of it. And in actual fact, they didn't get out of it. They, they went into liquidation. Um, so I took this job with this French company. And by the end, of, when I took it, I didn't know what I was taking on, but the figures by the end of February was 292 pounds, not 292,000. 292 pounds. So once again, I was back to virginity, really, because there was, there was only one way the figures could go. I either flopped or I grew. And um, 
within, well, at the time I joined, the company was turnover 1.7 million. My patch, as I say, was at best 10,000 pounds a year. Um, so the, the patch was losing money by the time it had paid me expenses and, and earnings. And um, within two years, my patch was doing 2.1 million. The other five together were still doing 1.7 million. So I was doing more than five reps put together. And my boss at the time, he's now dead, but he was a big mentor of mine. He couldn't believe how I was doing it. So he then started sending me out with the other reps, helping them. I was away from home a lot more, uh, and I was not spending as much time on my own patch. So I said to him, uh, I don't want to continue this unless it's something permanent and official. So he made his national sales manager. Um, He was very clever in how he did it because he put an advert in the press into my one of my client showrooms and working and then he said I thought you and Peter Wigley were like hand and glove I went what makes you say that he says well look at that advert he put a, a big advert in the trade press asking for a national sales manager so I got on the phone to him and went ballistic he's calm down calm down he says ring us back tomorrow go home ring us back tomorrow so I was full of hell all night long rang him the next day and uh, he says, have you calmed down? I went, so, so. He says, how many of the other reps rang you last night? I says, all of them. He says, how many rang me? I said, I don't know. He says, one of them, you. He says, so the reason for putting that advert in the paper was to see what the reaction was, and you've just proven that you were their leader because they automatically turned to you. You've got the job. So I went down and... Uh, Eventually, as national sales manager, got the turnover to grow to five million, and then he sold his shares out to the French company. The French company then wanted me to take over his route. Bear in mind, I'd never been a businessman before, but I'd been a good salesman. So there was a lot of learning curves in there. But at 29, I was the youngest MD in the kitchen industry, and got the company to to move even further forward and peaked at a turnover of 8.8 million. It was a family-run company, seven sons, and uh, they sold out to a big corporate. But of course, the big corporate come in and seen what Little Wayne Dance was earning and didn't like it. But I was earning it based on performance of profits, turnover, and a good salary package. So to cut a long story short, this happened on three occasions where each time a new buyer come in, I had this problem. And the problem they had was that the, the Bonnet brothers had given me a contract to my 65th birthday, and I was only 29. So for them to buy that contract, that was quite a few million quid. Yeah, yeah. Um, they then started to try and make things difficult. I had over a million pound in the company's bank account, which officially was yet their money. But my fiduciary duty was to, to the subsidiary, and I wouldn't let them have it. And they said, but it's our money. I said, it's not. It's Sophie Seb UK's money. And it's my duty to look after it. And at the time, we were getting 10% interest per year. So it was worth £100,000 profit. So eventually, I agreed to let them have half of it. And they paid me 8% interest on the half I'd give them for the rest of my life that I was still working there. So another bone of contention for them. But that was the agreement. So way back. Nah, that would have been in the mid-80s or late 80s. I was earning a, a, a ridiculous amount of money. Um, if, I, if, I, if I can just jump in there, Wayne, because um, I, I find that, uh, that fascinating how, how you got to that stage and, and that much success at, at such a young age. Um, what, why do you feel that you've done more than the other sales reps? Because oh. obviously you were, you were clearly pulling yourself away by quite some way and that's why you got promoted and people look up looked up to you but what do you feel that was down to drive and determination and never accepting no as a final answer um if you can't do it one way try it another and the upbringing in Leamington, which was a hard place to, to to grow and then the hardest route of learning was knocking on 300 doors per day and if you can stomach 295 doors slamming in your face every day, you can stomach easily 
uh, walking into the shop and them not being interested in your product. But the product was good. And I just found ways to make the product jump out rather than um, say, oh, this is the best thing. I just had examples. Of course, you didn't have iPads or you didn't even have sat navs in those days. It was A to Z. So I just made portfolios up with stencils and cut pictures out and was very, very um, visual in the way I was presenting. And people bought into that. And still to this day, the original customers that I inherited, I've probably still got about 60% of them. Obviously, some of them have retired, but it in-house now. I've got some clients that have been with us, well, with me for 35 years. So it was purely drive and belief in myself. And, uh, Love that. And I think what, perfect. But one thing you said there as well, obviously I'm in sales, as you know, um, <clears throat> got quite a large sales team. One thing I talk about quite often that you just mentioned there is, is is the visual thing because a lot of people do take in information visually opposed to just verbally. If you just explain something, some people won't make the buyer's decision and say yes to commit to whatever product because they don't fully understand. But when you visually show somebody, um, a lot of people just make a buyer's decision quicker or on the spot because they can see it. And that's really interesting that you said that because that, I truly believe well, that too. What you're actually saying there, Terry, the easiest way I can explain that to you is that I talk in pictures. A picture says a thousand words, yeah? And I talk in pictures. And if you talk in pictures, people get it much quicker than if you used a thousand words. Um, and it was just that unerring belief that what I was doing was right. It wasn't like I was selling something to rip people off. I was doing something and selling something that was good value for money and would benefit yeah. the buyer. And I believe that, and I still do to this day. Love that. Um, and you also said something at the, at the start there about um, you had a bit of a, a chip on your shoulder. Do you think that was part of your driving factor as well because you wanted to kind of prove that you can do something? Or you think that sort of carried um, you through? Absolutely, because... You know, even the careers officer, what are you going to be when you leave school? A footballer. Oh, yeah, but what are you really going to be? A footballer. Uh, and I did believe that, you know, I was playing football for, well, I was playing for clubs that I shouldn't have been playing for because I was underage. Um, and a lot of my heroes, like Supermac and Bob Monk, uh, are personal friends of mine now. And they did something that I would have loved to have done. And for a long, long time, I had a chip on my shoulder thinking I've missed out and look what they did. Bob taking Newcastle to the cup final and winning the first cup and things like that. Um, now, I don't have that chip anymore, even though they're my friends. They look up to me because financially I'm worth more than them, um, which you know is not a, a boast or a brag, but it means that yeah. my career has gone on much longer than theirs. And um, obviously, in a more rewarding way, you know, you're a footballer for a while, whereas you're a businessman for as long as you want to be. Love that. Some really, really great advice there. And I think there's definitely lessons people can extract from that, certainly around sales and, and drive mindset, you know, that's that's great. Um, thanks, Wayne. So, so that was the kind of growth part and how you became successful in becoming an MD and stuff at such a young age. Then obviously, we'll move on to in-house so tell us about tell us a little bit about the successes of in-house and how that's went since sort of 2003 right well i was 43 when i started in-house officially when i settled up the, the 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 contract with the french law i had to go on garden leave for 18 months but i accepted a lower settlement as long as they accepted that it would be six month garden leave and officially i could afford to retire at the age of 43 but there was no way I could have retired at 43. I could afford to, but I didn't want to. So I then looked for a factory in the UK that could build a product to my spec and went and seen all of the clients who said, oh, yeah, we'll buy that off you. So the company that I left thought they were making a saving by getting rid of me because I was an expensive piece. Um, but within one year, the turnover dropped by 7 million to 200,000. My turnover went the other way with 
uh, in-house, starting off like a, a whirlwind. Problem was, was that the factory that I promised this turnover to probably didn't believe us. And I hadn't done enough due diligence to see that they could cope with this volume and they couldn't. So all of a sudden, all of these friends who were backing us, I was putting their business in jeopardy because kitchens weren't turning up on time or they were turning up wrong-handed. Or, and I'm thinking, what the hell have I done here? And for two, the first two years, in-house lost somewhere in the region of half a million pounds. And that was my money that was just flying out of the, the chimney stack. Um, I then, I was living with a girl at the time who was an air hostess, quite a lot younger than me. And um, her brother was a QS and his first job was abroad in Turks and Caicos, eh, St. Lucia, sorry. And uh, he rang me up and he says, the company here, Johnston International, um, I've got a need for 57 kitchens, 124 bedrooms, 124 bathrooms. Are you interested? I had sourced an Italian manufacturer called Asta, which was very high end, because I knew that this company, this British company that I was buying off, was never going to be able to adapt and cope. And that was the first order I gave them, 57 kitchens. I jumped on a plane, went across to St. Lucia. They were all... Um, expats running the company. So it was, I was dealing with English people and just did such a pitch to give us the order for the 57 kitchens, 124 bedrooms, 124 bathrooms. At that time, it was, um, I think the contract value was about 750,000 US dollars. And I'd done it in one visit. We were making 10% commission on it. So we made 75 grand for one visit. And Asta performed admirably in getting the, uh, getting the project fulfilled. And they even sent their own installers out to install it. So Johnston International um, then had projects on other islands, in Turks and Caicos and Barbados, in um, Antigua, where I've now got a house. And um, do you want to do these with us? Well, again, I went across and... That resulted in about $15 million worth of business in the Caribbean. Nearly always with Asta, because at least Asta knew how to export to the, the faraway countries. And we were picking up commissions, which then got us in the black. Uh, I then found um, a German supplier at uh, a trade fair called Schuller. I'd never heard of them before but Schiller are the second biggest kitchen producer in Europe. And they were looking for an agent in the UK because the previous agent had only sold 200,000 pounds worth of uh, euros worth of goods in four years. So I went to the factory. I took 30 dealers with us, negotiated a fantastic deal with the Germans. The dealers loved the factory, loved the showroom, loved the product. And here we are now, um, that was in 2004, 2005. Here we are now, 2021, and we've given Schuller over 220 million euros worth of turnover. Uh, at the same time as that, a, a number one of Europe's bathroom manufacturers called Pelipal rang me up and said, would you be interested in rep representing us in the UK? So, of course, I did. And um, I, uh, I took it on. Again, it was a virgin product in the UK. Took it on. And um, here we are now, um, all these years, years later. Okay, it's vanities, so it's not like baths and, and toilets. It's just vanities with sinks. So it's not the, the order value of a kitchen. But here we are doing nearly 2 million euros per year on Pelipal as well. And then the latest addition is a, a bedroom company who's huge, 200, 200 million euro turnover in Italy. So that created the portfolio, it, it, it completed the, the, the collection. So between them three factories, if you take Schuller, Pelipal and Colombini and add them all together, there's over two billions worth of production comes out of those and I've got exclusivity in, in the UK. So that's where the 500 shops come in. 
Um, at that time, I was running from little offices built on my land here in Stocksfield. And those offices were built for four people. I had 12 office staff in, in offices big enough for four people. And I could roll out of bed into work because it was built next to my house, but I could never roll out of work into bed because I could never get away from it. And my two sons joined the business. Um, I always said I would never employ my sons, but I did. And what a fantastic decision that was be, that's been. Um, my third son, I call him my third son, but he's not my biological son, Mallow, who you've met. Um, yeah. I inherited him from the French for six months because he didn't want to do national service in the French army. So I did a favour to his father-in-law-to-be by taking him on, and here he is 27 years later still with us. So I'm 75% short shareholder and Stuart, Christopher and Mallow between them are the other 25. And I had to start planning for the future because I'm not getting any younger. I'm not planning on croaking anytime soon, but I needed to get a new uh, dimension and a new direction for the company. So I bought this um, building in Hexham for 275000 expecting to be able to um, extend it up over and out over. But when the building quotes come in, it was cheaper to knock it down and start again. Not again, yeah. I, if really, what I bought was uh, um, a, a plot of land with a building that was a nuisance on it because it cost us to knock it down. Yeah. Uh, I set the budget at $1 million to build the new premises, but as we kept on going, we kept having other ideas and adding, and it ended up at $2 million. Now, so if somebody had asked us at the time of doing that, which was before COVID and before Brexit, um, would you have done it if you knew COVID and Brexit was going to happen? And the answer was um, probably not. Um, so Brexit come along, the TV, I was on TV channels and things like that discussing um, the effects of Brexit. And again, I said to them, I said, well, I spent two million on German and Italian products. So there is your answer. If I believe that, uh, that it's going to kill me, would I have done that? Anyway, the long and the short was that Brexit come. It took a long time. And the 500 showrooms were very nervous about it. And then COVID come. So in 2020, our turnover, because shops were shut for months on end, our turnover regressed by four to five million in one year. Um, but that was from the 500 shops. Because we were an agency as well as a retailer, we, we were still legally allowed to, to operate. So we did. And the B2C business, the business to consumer business at Hexham, just kept going from strength to strength to strength. So we, what we lost on the swings with the shop shutting, we gained on the roundabouts with Hexham being open. But what decision, if you ask us now, absolutely it was the right decision. And here we are um, still with lockdowns this year, but we're 31% up on last year, which sounds better than it is because we had to claw back the, uh, the deficit. But 31% up and now in... Just over two and a half years since we opened Hexham, we've done over four million pounds worth of BBC turnover from there and going from strength to strength. So what I've actually built was a state-of-the-art headquarters and offices and showroom that is a leading example to the other 500 shops and the other 500 shops use it as an extension of their business because We've got 63 displays in there. They'd, they'd be lucky if they've got six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So when somebody wants to see something that they haven't got, they send them to Hexham. People coming from Wales all over. And we'll look after them for them and then send them back. Uh, we don't try and poach the business or anything like that. So that's where we are today. And now, if something was to happen to me, um, my sons have got a business and a legacy to uh, continue from. And all the time they're learning and I'm trying to pass on the, 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 the white hair learning curve, um, which 
fortunately for them, I've done the, the worst bits. And as long as they keep it the way going, the way that they're, they're learning by example, then they'll not have to have the white hair at my age. Um, yeah. and having no hair at my age. So. <laughs> yeah, true. I've got I've got quite a few questions that came from that part. Um, if I can go through those. So yeah. um obviously you went from obviously very successful in what you've done elsewhere to then starting up yourself, difficult couple of years, lost quite a bit of money, um, to then this huge spike by pulling off these big contracts. Um how did you keep your mindset right in the downtime going from really successful elsewhere to setting up yourself, losing money to then pull it back again? You know, was there, was there a turning point? Was there, was it just this drive that kept you going? What do you feel? It was sort a of- turning point and I remember it very well, Terry, because um, I was lying in my bed at night time and virtually seeing the, the roof tiles blow off my roof one by one um, because it was getting deeper and deeper in and I, I couldn't find a quick solution that was going to fix things. Um, I didn't take a salary for two years. I had to pay Mallow and Tony, uh, obviously, because they they had they didn't have my wealth at the time and they had to live. Um, but it, the turning point was on an October day, I can't remember the date, I was 80% of the turnover coming in and they were the other 20 between them. And I sat them down at the table in the, the old kitchen that you will remember. And yeah. I said, boys, this has got to change. Um, I've, I'm going to give it a Christmas. And unfortunately, if things haven't flipped by Christmas, we're better off going our own ways, uh, which was the hardest thing in the world for me to do because I, I loved them like brother and son. Um, and you just think somebody upstairs was thinking, right, okay, he's had enough, let's flip the switch. And then we got this contract. I mean, dealers were going crazy because I jumped on a plane to St. Lucia when the UK was falling apart because this factory wasn't delivering. And then yeah. after St. Lucia. And yeah, I was, because that's what saved the company. And um, that was the, the big turning point. And... Um, Within three or four years, I turned the half a million deficit on the balance sheet into a 200,000 profit on the balance sheet. And uh, fair play. Years later, now in house is a very, very wealthy, doesn't owe anybody any money, very wealthy, self sufficient company. Love that. Um, another question I had obviously, you've got these exclusivity rights with these huge. Um, multi-million, billion-pound um, companies across the world. Is it quite challenging to to manage the relationships? Because I believe business is a lot about relationships. You clearly must have a great relationship with them. Obviously, you're producing the numbers for them, which helps. But is the what advice could you give to somebody who who wants to maintain a relationship with a big supplier? If if that's maybe a lot of their business, you know, it's probably in the back of people's minds. You know, if I lose this contract the business could could really be negatively impacted. What's your advice on maintaining those type relationships with, with big firms? Well, all, all of the companies that we deal with, firstly, are not PLC companies. They're, they're family-owned. Okay. Um, I'm the first to admit it, and if you spoke to the Germans or the Italians, they will also confirm that I'm the most difficult person to deal with. <laughs> I am very, very focused on what I want, and my counterpart in Holland... Um, a guy called Henk Kohost, Schuller family call me and him the twins because he is a double of me and is very difficult for them to deal with too. And all me and him is, yeah, but who is your two most ex, uh, is your, your two most successful export countries? There's your answer. Yeah. So, to be fair, the relationship is very, very strong and very, very good. And there's a lot of trust built up over these years. Yeah. We're earning a lot of money out of it. But, you know, we're not an, an agency like, as you would think of an agency, maybe it's one or two people. We've got 30 people. And uh, so it's a corporation, not, not just a, a one-man band. Yeah. And you have those 30 people to give the right backup and the right service and be able to keep exploring uh, new opportunities 
And they totally trust us and we're in a 10-year contract with them. Um, so the answer to that is just be straight, be, be demanding because you've got to be. Because if you're not demanding with your suppliers, you won't be demanding with your, your clients neither. Uh, and as long as you ask for something that's fair and not be greedy and yeah. something you deserve, then that's the, the, the secret to it. Because if I, as, as I've always said to these factories, it's no good me having a smile on my face and you having a grimace on your face or vice versa. We've both got to walk away from this table with a smile on our faces. Got to be a win-win, hasn't it? Definitely. Yes, I think that's really important in business. Love that, Wayne. Thank you for that. Um, I've just got a couple more questions. Um, one that I was uh, just came to when you were speaking there. Um, obviously, I know Stu and I know Chris, your two sons, top, top lads, um, customers, friends. You know, they're clearly very, very good at what they do. Um, how was that? You know, I think you mentioned you were a little bit hesitant bringing them on, but it's proven to be the right thing. What's it like working with family? Because I know there's probably people out there who have tried it. It's the about- easiest thing because you've yeah. got to wear two hats, father's hat and boss's hat. And um, they're both very, very good at what they do. So therefore, they've got a belief in themselves, just like what I had. But there is times where they want to make decisions that I can see as folly. Uh, and that's where the difficulty comes in because they, they, they think, well, you know, you're, you're getting past it now, Dad. <laughs> so yeah. every now and again, I can see them making a mistake and I allow them to make it. And I write it in a bit of paper before they make the mistake and I put it in the safe. And then when the mistake's made, I say to them, go upstairs into that safe and open the envelope that's in there and see what I wrote down six months ago and when they do I could have stopped you doing that but you wouldn't listen so I've let you do it and now you can see why I didn't want you to do it not massive you know not massive financial clangers but it certainly cost money um, and enough um, enough lesson in it to be able to say oh the old bugger's still right Um, yeah It'll, it'll make them stronger business people they want it for when they eventually do take over yeah definitely no I love that I love that um, we've talked about sales a little bit you're obviously clearly very good at sales still um, so we talked a bit about the advice thing the visual thing having drive determination grit and things like that but what advice would you give for any business people who are either already successful or quite successful already what advice would you give uh, to business people specifically well um Each business is different, and I'm not so arrogant that I believe that I could tell everybody how to do things better because, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's cutting cloth accordingly. What I would say is to anybody who's in business, don't stop believing and don't settle for where you're at. Always have another rung on the ladder to aim for. Because if you go onto a football pitch, talking in pictures again now, but you go onto a football pitch and there's no goals on the pitch, don't be surprised if it's nil-nil at the end of the game. Um, and, you know, I've got various motivational points of sale around the buildings in Hexham. And um, one of them is the, the, the words, opportunity is nowhere. But if you move that space to being... Um, in between the W and the H, its opportunity is now here. Exactly the same letters, just one space difference, and it's complete polar opposite. And everybody thought, you know, Brexit would be a, a, a disaster for the, 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 the people like me who's buying foreign products, but here we are, 31% up uh, in my first real year of Brexit. Um, and in the middle of a, a COVID pandemic. But um, I think the, the, the simple advice is just keep learning. Don't settle for what you've got. Always aim for the stars. And if, if you aim for the stars and you reach the moon, you've still done bloody well. Love that. It's great advice. Continuous improvement. Um, yeah, my name and high, you know. 
probably all those years ago, if someone said to you, you'll be turning over what you're turning over now in the early age, you probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have believed them, you know, but, but gradually, gradually you get there and keep, keep pushing yourself. I think it's great advice, Wayne. Um, so thank you for that. Um, just last, last couple of questions. Um, the show is called the rags to riches show. Um, but what does being rich mean to you? Because you can be rich in time and in relationships, friendships, monetary terms, but what does being rich mean to you? Well, rich, as you rightly said, isn't just about money. You can be the richest person on the planet and the loneliest person on the planet. What, what money has done for me is allow me not to worry about where my next crumb's coming from, which is good. Um, I've been lucky enough to be able to buy houses in different countries in the world, which are holiday homes that I can go to. Uh, lucky enough to, to drive the car of my choice. But at the end of the day, it's not just about money. Happiness is something you can't buy no matter how much money you've got. And um, you've got to try and balance. And it is difficult in your early uh, career because you're working 20 hours a day and your family are growing up around you and you're not getting the benefit of that. I've been very lucky I got my family back because I've employed them. Um, but I missed them growing up. I was never there. And that destroyed a marriage. Um, so from that perspective, um, wealth to me is just a way that I can live whichever way I want to live. But as long as I've got enough money to last us for the rest of my life, I'm not craving billions of pounds, which is a little bit of a contradiction to what I said earlier, saying don't settle for what you've always got. Um, or what I know what you mean, though. I know what you mean. Um, but at the end of the day, um, my go-to phrases are think outside the box. Don't do, don't do what you always did, because if you do, don't be surprised. If you, if, you, if you do what you always did, don't be surprised if you always get what you always got. Um, so again, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to uh, embrace change. Brexit has changed. We've embraced it. We're going from there. Um, and you've got to keep on looking. The world now will never be the same world that we lived in pre-COVID. Never, ever again. And people keep saying, oh, let's get back to the norm. Well, th there isn't such a thing. This is the norm not now. not going back, is it? It's no. not going back. And, uh, you know, what we're doing now uh, talking to each other on a, on a computer, um, before COVID, people, especially elderly people, didn't know how to FaceTime. They didn't, know how, they didn't know how to buy online. But as Mr. Bezos, who's now in space, can testify, though, his shares have gone up by thousands of percent. <laughs> yeah. Money online, and I'd never bought anything online before. Um, and a lot of people now are FaceTiming their friends. So all of the rich uh, moguls like uh, Gates and Zuckerberg and Bezos, they're all getting richer through all of this new world, uh, purely and simply because it's opened the, the door for people to embrace technology more, just like what we're doing now, talking to each other. Love that. I think what I took from that is embracing change is something that I think a lot of people, when when change occurs or change is on the horizon, a lot it's human nature to back off and and go against change, isn't it? Whereas, you like you rightly say, the really wealthy, the really successful, the people who move ahead typically embrace change and think, right, well, that's the problem, but what's the solution? Look at the solution, not the problem. And you've done that in your own business. And like you mentioned, a lot, a lot of other successful people have. Um, also, like what you said about, I think people will be able to relate to that, listening and, what, and watching, because the bit you said about, um, you know, happiness is something that money can't be bought but happiness can't be bought sorry there's something that money can't buy um and a lot of people i feel certainly my friends the focus so much on success and money they neglect the home life they neglect the families the relationships and there might be a stage where the the regret doing that it's not all about money uh it's about getting that balance like you, like you said there um Went great, great episode. Love, loves chatting to you. If anybody wants to um, look at what in-house do, because there's a lot of property investors I know will be listening. So if they want to reach out to you or reach out in-house and see what products you offer, what's the best way for them to to get in touch? Well, the best way to get in touch is uh, firstly go on the in-house website. There's two, which is www.inhouse 
uh, ltd.co.uk. There's also the Caribbean website because of our projects abroad, which is www.inhousecaribbean.com. Um, have a look at the, pro the, the products. There's a phone number on there. There's a, uh, an email address on there where they can just write and we'll respond. Or they can, um, you know, they can look me up and, and ring me personally if, if they want to talk. I'm always there. Uh, and as a result of us having the right products, effectively, I suppose, the best way I can describe it to you again is talking in pictures, is our product portfolio is the quality of a Mercedes Jaguar BMW for the price of a Ford Mondeo. So it's a perfect scenario uh, where people think we're more expensive than what we are. And of course, then we give them a nice surprise by giving them what they want at a price they can afford it. And uh, that's one of the, 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 road, the, the, the roads to success we're always based it on. Again, talking in pictures, I've even had adverts of Mercedes and, uh, uh, and, and Jaguars and, and put that quote in for the price of a Ford. I once did a very naughty thing and said, um, the price, the, the quality of a Rolex for the price of a digital. And I had all of the dealers up and down the country using it as a bromide in, the, in, the, uh, in the, the, the newspaper ads in the local regions. And then chance solicitors who are Rolex's solicitor come down very trademark you've used without our permission. And I wrote back and said, Yeah, but I'm bestowing the virtue of Rolex. And the Clifford Chance wrote, he says, Don't push it, buddy. He says it took Wimbledon a hundred years to get Rolex up on center court. So retract <laughs> them. Another lesson learned. <laughs> it, hit the, it hit the button because a lot of people come in as responding to that advert. It was just a yeah. shame to continue the, the campaign. Yeah, love that. And, and just again to back up what Wayne's saying, I've been in the showroom, I've seen the products, I've seen his original office where he had all the samples on the walls. It, it's beautiful, beautiful stuff. Mm -hmm. Certainly for the developers that are going for a higher end look, these high end HMOs, these if you're doing a flip um, and you want to just put a, an extra little touch on it. Um, Really, really good stuff. So um, have a look at what he does. Great, 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 great quality and price. So thank you so much, Wayne. I really appreciate your time today. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's likewise, mate. Thanks a lot, Wayne. Have a good day.